BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, Courage or Cringe, featuring special guest John Ford. Today we cover racial migration, Elon Musk and non-fungible tokens, and Marvel's announcement of its first gay Captain America. Is an intentional race-based migration to consolidate political power a novel socioeconomic strategy or a recipe for balkanization and discord? Do technology titans have an added layer of responsibility to wade into market and social conversations carefully? Or is their disruptive spirit part of the DNA that makes them interesting? Should our animated heroes and heroines, especially ones that speak to kids, reflect the identity issues of our modern sensibilities? Or should social and identity issues be left to others to discuss? This and more this week on TDR. Jesus, we're back. We are. We have a great guest. It's been another week. I know. We've got an awesome, awesome guest with us. Uh, I'm going to get to that uh, immediately. Um, it's so great to actually be joined by folks from from the outside world to share their perspective. Something we actually thought about very early on in the days of development of this podcast is like featuring the folks into this is going to be a big part of the shaping of this uh, of this show. And so with that, I'm very, very pleased to welcome to the show John Fort, a decorated journalist. He's a co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Alley, a former Fortune and Time writer and editor and currently creator, designer and publisher of a brand new platform called The Black Experience in America, which uh, we, Jesus, you and I have uh, actually dived into, Mm -hmm. um, which is really fascinating. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about a second ago, like the word squawk, because we know you're the host of uh, of Squawk Alley, and we're thinking... (laughs) Because we've heard that before in financial yeah. context, and like, we're, that's got to have some kind of financial significance. From, right? like, what, what? <laughs> yeah. So we looked it up, and of course now we're educated and know that it has something to do with the financial world. We went a little overboard at CNBC with the whole squawk thing, you know, squawk box, squawk on the street, squawk alley. We're gonna we're gonna rein it in a little bit, and the eleven o'clock tech hour is gonna be renamed Tech Check starting in April. Oh, um, nice. So, yeah, fewer squawks. Fear squawks. All right. Well, it's an actual, like, I guess, a amplification system or something used on Wall Street, right? To, like, kind of call out trades and all that. So I had no idea. Yes. So, I mean, I just always, I knew the definition of squawk, but didn't know that. But anyway, so, so grateful to have you on the show. Where, where are you physically, John, right now? 
I am physically in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey at CNBC headquarters in a cozy conference room. Nice. You guys are back in uh, office work for the most part or still kind of hybrid? Yeah, you know, I have been here pretty much all along. I mean, normally, you know, during pre-COVID times, we produced the 11 o'clock hour out of the New York Stock Exchange, like literally on Wall Street every morning. Mm -hmm. And then last March, when COVID really hit, we moved out of there when it became clear that this was going to be a longer term thing and moved out of there, was home for about two weeks on, you know, of, of quarantine. And then I started coming into the office at Inglewood Cliffs, kind of in a distanced safe way. There are not that many employees coming in for the past year, but I was uh, one anchoring out of here and uh, I, I prefer it. Yeah. No, that's it. There's so much conversation right now about that. We haven't actually talked about it specifically on the show, but just CEOs in general, a lot of people thinking about what actually this new normal or next normal looks like with respect to employees in the office. And on some level, there's acknowledgement every, that everybody agrees with, which is things have changed. But I don't know that we know what that next sort of standard looks like, but right. it looks to be a bit different. From there's actually had. like real planning going on now. Right? Sure. We were recently in a conversation where people were having you know, discussion about like when is the right time to start like even offering to employees start coming back. In a more in a, in, a, in a larger manner, but you know the impact that it's going to have in commercial real estate, the impact that it has on temporary workspaces, I think is pretty amazing. We know some folks that are that are in that industry, and, and their whole model has been completely redone, um, which would be I think really really interesting um, as as that goes forward. I mean, the the reality to create such a great opportunity as it relates to talent, right? And we've talked about this, especially for companies that are not in the coast or in the areas where you know historically they've had a hard time. Uh, you know, recruiting people to their areas to go live there. Now their their ability to be able to bring in talent and to have them work with them remotely really kind of completely expands, um, which I think is going to do a lot in terms of really hopefully balancing the you know the scales for some of these organizations in terms of being able to get talent that would otherwise want to work in these places, but just didn't necessarily want to live in the, in the areas where those companies are based out of. I'm not so sure though. Really? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's this talk about everything's going to be different and hybrid workforces and all that. But come on, you know that the people who see each other in the office are going to have this sort of natural affinity that water cooler is a mm -hmm. thing, going out to lunch is a thing. That's hard to replace. Know, grabbing a bite Zoom, or whatever. Yeah. After. yeah. So, I mean, I think we still have to see how things like promotions and other opportunities, work opportunities get affected by who's in the office versus who's not. Who gets to move laterally? Who sure. gets a little bit of that extra mentoring and oh, yeah. insight? We companies are going to have to work really hard to make sure that a different kind of opportunity gap inside the the workforce doesn't open up. So I, you know, I would advise anybody who mm -hmm. has been on the fringe of typical in their workforce, don't think you're going to work from home and <laughs> and move up in the organization at the same pace as you get get yourself into the office you heard it you heard it here first you know I, i'm with you john i i, I uh, as is my want occasionally i ascribe far more nefarious uh you know <laughs> uh reasons for certain things but i think this is entirely a, a kind of a, a strange sort of game theory um uh, dynamic in the sense that to the extent that there's a few people that then begin to use you know, in office presence, or you be, or it begins to be noticed that in office uh, presence is additional currency, then that begins to kind of game it against sure. people. So it's like, 
you know, I think the thing that changes that or perhaps a short circuit in that is the degree to which the CEO does it or the, the top leader does it in the organization, right? If they're at home two, three days a week or whatever, maybe that sets the tone. But in the absence of that, yeah. you're going to wonder. You're going to be like, what am I losing out on? What's, you know, I, I think it has a lot more to do with the, the actual group that you're part of. Right. If you're part of a group that's already kind of hybrid as it is, mm-hmm. I think then it facilitates the process of having some people that are not always there. If the reality, if you're like the one person out, yeah, it's going to be weird. Then that's just like no matter how you look at it, it's oh, just it's going to be fun times because of all the other conversations that happen. To you know, to John, to your point, you know, outside of the meeting room, right, on, on the hall, etc. Um, the 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 one that we've not heard though, in terms of like a possible workaround is is a little bit of a hybrid model in the sense of. Not necessarily asking people to have to be in office every single day, but at least being able to having to come in maybe once or twice a week, have some in office presence, um, but still being able to do things remotely. But at that one point, you know, does that go from once to twice, and then like all of a sudden it's like the whole time? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I'm an office ninja. Yeah. Uh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I go around yeah. the office. Yeah, pop in on people's desks. Sure. Chat a little bit, right? Because you never know when you sure. need. You know, a little help, a little favor from somebody or need insight into what somebody's thinking. And if you pop by their desk a few times over the months, then you know you can just sort of like do that. So I think, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're going to stay home, you got to figure out how to be an in-office and out-of-office ninja. you got to have right. like this – you got to have eyes in the back of your head. So, you know, <laughs> grow some eyes in the back of your head, y'all, yeah, if you want to stay yeah. home. That's all, yeah. You it's know? very true. Very, very competitive. Fair, very fair. So, John, I mentioned in the opening that uh, you've done a lot of things and you're an accomplished, as we've already heard, on CNBC, et cetera. But you've developed something new, which is really interesting. And Asus and I have firsthand experience doing some portion of it. It's called the Black Experience in America. What is that? Tell us about it. Well, uh, thanks, Charlie. It's a an online course. Um, and right now it's in three interactive parts that you know anybody can just jump on and take. Really, the version that is online is for adults, but can also be used with young people if you're going through it together or if your young person is precocious, like a precocious <laughs> junior high uh, student. A uh, fr- friend of mine from high school had her daughter going through it, and, and she really enjoyed it. And um, the, the structure is different from traditional, I would say. I think traditionally, Black history and, and culturally related uh, materials tend to center on slavery and the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a little lead up to each one, and but but pretty much that's it. And there aren't always rooted in the issues that we're facing today. And really, this structure came out of, um, and actually, you can you can find this at fortmedia.com. I know uh, it'll be in the show, uh, show notes to F-O-R-T-T-M-E-D-I-A. Yeah, Fort yeah. with two T's. Um, I, this structure really is something I developed after George Floyd was killed when I was thinking about what I wanted to communicate to uh, our two sons. My wife and I have two boys, uh, ages 10 and 12, about the black experience in America. And uh, not to scare them or to, um, to tell them what to think, but to give them some context, some information about ideas, leaders, movements that have come before uh, social conditions in the country, patterns that we've had in our culture, and to then really be able to think about those and apply that information to what they see happening in the world today and the difference that they want to make. And uh, so it's 18 lessons, taught it over six weeks, uh, ended up teaching it not just to uh, our sons, but uh, about a dozen kids 
total over Zoom during COVID. And the feedback was just great that I got from the kids and from the parents who were kind of all over, um, shouldn't say all over the country, but stretching from Chicago to Florida to DC area, New York area, a lot of different places. And um, I told myself, hey, if this works, let me try to share it uh, with a broader group of people. And so that's the stage that, uh, that we're in, Fort Media. John, uh, uh, just one quick one quick add on that. I, what you I don't know if you're aware. I think you know about Jesus, but both Jesus and I have um, mixed race Latino and Black families, and I really dig what you said about you know kind of the genesis of this, obviously being George Floyd, but the 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 sort of landscape of resources really fixated around, or more perhaps more focused around. Um, you know, slavery and the civil rights movement, with maybe a smattering of other things. I, I totally agree with you, and I think in educating, you know, our granddaughter, my daughter, et cetera, you know, we've we've looked for resources, or in some cases, struggled for resources that were authentic to the Black experience, but that actually delved into the richness of of heritage and history beyond those things. And so, it's just nice to to see that, just on a personal level. Um, yeah, from and what I, I've been I really do to. love the Genesis story of doing this, like very personally for your kids first and foremost, and then and seeing the value in that, and then expanding to other other folks. And I agree with Charlie. I mean, we have the sort of same situation uh, with my daughter, who's nine now. Um, um, well, she's about. Oh, I'm sorry. She's, she, yeah, she's nine now. Oh, she's about to turn turn nine in two weeks. Uh, but yeah, enough. having the same the same sort of situation of of really trying to give their give her a sort of full understanding with a lot of context of the history that she is basically like walking into, and it's always so interesting with kids, right? Because my daughter, her whole life, she's only known a world that already had a black president. Like it's so interesting when you think about that, and sort of especially like race relations, right? When you, when, for her perspective, is like now seeing some of the things that happened over the summer was really like, you know, it was it was it was difficult to talk her talk her through it because even being able to explain this this certain level certain level of racism that still exists in this country, even though as mentioned she was born into a world that already had a black president, which you know for for all of us, you know, it was such a a unique thing that just happened, right? Uh, or even her yeah. first, and I say even her first female black vice president. Right. Like that's, you know, it's all historic. But for her, it seems like a very natural thing because that's what she's literally been you know, born into. Yeah. To us, that, that was like a UFO. Right. Growing <laughs> yeah. Up. Yeah. You, yeah. It's like, really? UFOs really exist? Yeah, exactly. We're going to have a black president and 2000. Really? I don't know. I mean, I've, I've seen the, the fiction in the programs on TV like that. Sure. Can happen. I've seen X-Files. But you tell me that's really going to happen? Like, I saw 24, <laughs> but really? I that's right, 24, so. that's yeah. The yeah. Austin guy, the Austin yeah, guy. You know, like, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you tell me he really is going to be president? Like, yeah. you know, um, that's kind of what it was for us. But yeah, I think that's one of the challenges, extra challenges for this generation is, you know, my mom grew up in the segregated South. And so I was part of that generation that's right after the civil rights movement. And there was sort of this built in understanding things were really messed up just a minute ago. Right. And so now with your generation, it starts to change. And then, you know, we'll all be mixing and then there'll be integration and your kids won't have this problem. It's sort of what we were sold. Yeah. And, you know, our kids, I think, in a way, were not prepared for this kind of reality, even as much uh, as we were, because the civil rights movement, you know, especially as the textbooks tend to state it, and the civil rights movement fixed everything. King had a dream, and now we're living it to some extent, mm-hmm. right? That That's sort of the way things get framed, and I think a lot of young people today are like, well, wait a minute, no, that clearly, something yeah. something didn't work there. Um, something didn't connect, yeah. So, 
Yeah. John, do you see a, an opportunity to expand the black experience in America into other experiences? Like as you think about the future, I know that your family's mixed as well. Like do you en- envision that being a part of this? Yeah, the family is uh, is black and Korean. Um, my wife is Korean American, born in Illinois. Um, her parents both immigrated, and uh, we're fortunate enough in 2019 to actually be able to go to visit Korea and visit relatives there and stay in the like ancestral uh, home where generations of my wife's family uh, have lived. And um, so, I, I think what I can say at this point is that. I've seen the parallels in the black experience and how it can illuminate the American experience in general. And in this time that we're in right now, where uh, more of us are beginning to confront anti-Asian and Asian-American bias in this country, I can see how some of the same questions, issues, philosophical challenges that we tackle in the black experience are applicable to the Asian American experience. Double consciousness, that tension that W.E.B. Du Bois in the early 1900s is talking about the tension of being uh, American and African at the same time, but not getting fully you know, seen as fully either. Well, isn't that applicable to the experience now of being American and Asian and not yeah. being seen as fully either, right? And so in what ways can we draw parallels and um, open up lines of communication and heal the overall culture and civil society to a point where more people are seen, more people are prepared, and, uh, and more people are supporting each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, makes sense. Well, let's see if we can um, jump into these subjects today and use that as an opportunity to heal uh, the culture in one way, shape or another. Um, as you know, you may know, John, we started this podcast really as a way to offer a platform for people to have nuanced conversations around difficult issues and not just have a kind of an hour long head nodding session. So maybe, uh, this show can do, uh, have a small contribution to what you just, uh, described, but again, congratulations on that platform. And, uh, we'll, we'll include all the information in the show notes because I think it's really important that people check out these resources, particularly ones that are really taking a new or a more innovative slant at communicating what is a, a super complex and deep um, experience. Um, so thanks for, for putting that together. Yeah, thank you. Cool. All right. Well, John, I think you've heard the show, so you probably know how to play, but just for uh, argument's sake, let's have Jesus explain how we play Courage or Cringe. Yeah. So Courage or Cringe, we have three topics to, uh, to talk through. Um, I'm going to tee up each one of the topics. And then we'll go around the room and basically say whether or not we think that position is courageous or cringeworthy. And is it our tradition to have the guests go first? And I think uh, it makes sense to have you go first uh, throughout on, the, on today's show. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we get started? Yeah, so let's talk about migration. So Charles Blow, the New York Times columnist and author of the book, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto, presents a very innovative or, or controversial, depending on how you think of it, way for black Americans to gain more power in this country. Now, according to Mr. Blow, there are two Americas. One is the world of those who remain in the post-slavery South. The other is inhabited by those who fled the South to refuge in what he terms destination cities across the North and West during the Great Migration. Uh, But he argues that these destination cities are now broken and calls this Great Migration a stinging failure. His proof of this is racism, police brutality, and inequalities that black people face in these destination cities. So based on that, he makes an argument for what he describes as the most, and I quote, the most audacious power play by black America in the history of the country. 
right? Now, what he's doing, you know, he actually calls for African-Americans to reverse migrate south to collectively dismantle white supremacy by using their ancestral homeland as a political base, right? The fact that black people have been returning south for the past 40 years, he thinks demonstrates that there is fertile ground for this idea. Now, his idea has roots in, in, in past black power movements from the 1920s and 1960s. However, his main inspiration comes from actually the political movement of white hippies who moved to Vermont. That's right. Uh, I, I love that, right? In the early 1970s. Yeah. Supposedly int- because of a Rolling Stone article or something. Oh, no, uh, no Playboy, Playboy article. Oh, that was? They kicked off this whole thing. Yeah, it's crazy. I think that's, yeah, He that's, talks about it in a PBS article, that, uh, interview that I, that I saw. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Uh, but so white hippies who moved to Vermont in the early 1970s with the intent of transforming the state's conservative electoral politics, right? Now, this is with, uh, with uh, Bernie Sanders is from, right? So you can see sort of the correlation there. Uh, now, his theory got a boost from seeing Georgia flip blue and the impact that it had both on presidential and Senate elections in control, sure. right? So basically for him, he sees it as a proof of concept. Now, forming this band of black voters across the South, which, uh, which would include basically Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama— Georgia and South Carolina, right? And, and in particular, he thinks it would, uh, it would, according to him, upend American's political calculus and exponentially increase black citizens' influence in American politics. I mean, a lot of his strategy is very state-focused, which makes sense, right? Because he even calls it, I think, one of the interviews that I heard him speak to us was like, look, this is the United States of America. So to the degree that you're going to control state power, like he would love national power. Sure. But if you control state power, that has massive influence in terms it's of how it's the nation it's ironic. operates. I'll get to it in my notes, but it's ironic how much of the talking points could be framed by other people, even conservatives, some of the things that he says. It's really, really interesting. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, of course, there are two main requirements for the strategy to work, right? One is he needs actually black people to move back to the South in large numbers, enough to make a difference. And number two, which is, I think, a really interesting point, is it needs people to trust the political system, especially black people, right? And in many cases, you know, have felt that, you know, they've, you know, haven't always been, been served the right way. So I think those two main points are obviously very critical for his strategy to uh, to work. Mm-hmm. So that's the context. Uh, there's a lot we can get into because I, I have my own notes, but we can kind of oh, talk through is... it as, as we get into it. But, but John... I don't know how familiar you were or you are with uh, with um, Professor Blow. Yeah, with, with Charles Blow and, and, and this book specifically. But yeah, what are your thoughts? You know, do you think his position here courageous, cringeworthy, and, and tell us why? Well, it sounds like a great idea, and I'm cringing, cringing. Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm someone. I can't say I've read the book, but uh, my wife did help to host and open up a uh, Montclair Library chat with Charles Blow, where he mm. talked about this oh, cool. you know, locally in our community. And so, you know, she and I talked about it, and I've been, I've been thinking about it. And, I mean, I know he lives in Atlanta, yeah. which is technically the South. But I've been to Atlanta. You know, I lived in Myrtle Beach for a summer during college. My mom is from the South. I spent some time. This is not going to work. Like, on paper, looks great. But at this time, where we've got so many, you know, I don't want to be careful about how I put it, but we've got so many people, politicians, systems in the South that are working to retool the voting system and who gets to vote, right? And, and sort of bring back some of the old jams in the South when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, when it comes to voting. At this time, you're telling me that you want to move a bunch of black people who grew up in the North, in the Northeast into the South and just sort of like slide in there. And that's just going to go smooth for everybody. Like Mm. I I know that when you're black in the South, the way that people interact, the way that more traditional people expect to interact with you 
is just way different. Sure. And uh, right. so not only would that be a jarring experience for the black people moving from Philadelphia, right, to what do you say, Louisiana, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, Mississippi. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's a big difference between Jay-Z and Master P. Okay, so yeah, well, so what a great life. <laughs> but you mean to tell me that the folks in the South are just gonna sit by and watch this caravan of black people moving in explicitly in order to change voting patterns, and that's just gonna go smooth? I don't think so, Charles. But don't you think, John, in some ways you're kind of making a little bit of his argument? Because look, when you start, and I agree with mm -hmm. you, there's so much of this that is taking place in a lot of these states where they're literally looking at voting laws to try to make it harder for many people to actually be able to be part of the political system. And part of the way that you stop that is by having enough people who obviously disagree with that, with that position to be able to vote to make sure that it doesn't actually happen. So I, yeah. I agree with you. The practicality is, 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 is challenging, but the rationale seems, I don't know, it seems kind of like, you know, like that could work. I mean, the rationale I think is kind yeah. of there. It works on paper. Why don't you, Charles, try Montana first. Like you, <laughs> right. you set up the Start Vermont there. example. There was hardly anybody in Vermont. So it didn't right. take that much to flip Vermont. You're trying to flip South Carolina. That's going to take a whole lot of Negroes to flip <laughs> South Carolina, That's right? Funny. So why yeah. don't you start smaller, get some like Wyoming, maybe one of the Dakotas, see if you can get us to move out there. And then after that test case, you know, we can try we can try what do you say, Mississippi? Yeah, yeah we can right. try Mississippi. Yeah. They just changed they just changed the flag. And you want to try to right. <laughs> literally like a week Baby ago. Steps. Hey, yeah. hey, John, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm curious, though, on that one in terms of, of the people just sort of sitting by and watching folks show up and we're going to just be OK with it. Does that apply in all directions too? in your reckoning? Like, is it is it also the fact that even among black communities here, we've got the black folks from the north coming to fix everything that we've been unable to. It, it, it smacks of a sense of of pretension or elitism, perhaps. It, even among black communities, or at least it could. Well, there's an economic challenge, and I, he's got um, nuance in his argument. Sure. So I'm, I'm having a little fun with it, but I, I do acknowledge that. And he has said at times that it, he's not talking about people who are just um, having a, a, a good social and economic experience in the North moving to the South. Right. He's talking more about people who are um, encountering certain resistances and, and systematic problems um, to, to go and fight that battle in the South versus in the North, mm -hmm. because there will be more, uh, he, he would argue, of an impact to making progress in the South that there would be in the North. But, you know, I still think that the structural challenges of um, both political life in the South, economic life in the South, mm -hmm. so, you know, what are the jobs that are going to be worked down there? Uh, where's the housing mm -hmm. for this? Um, how do you deal with uh, gerrymandering issues that uh, are, are already there but are inevitably going to be even more there if you have some influx of thousands or hundreds of thousands of uh, you know new, new state residents? Sure. And then how are you going to get people to vote if they weren't voting in the north? You know, right. What's going to change voting rates of people of color in this country and registration that needs to change anyway. So you've got to both get people to physically move to probably no jobs, you know, unless unless there's some I don't know, unless there's some jobs program in Louisiana where all these people are going to get employed. Like 
and get registered to vote and vote. That's a, it's a tall order. Wow. Okay. So one cringe, Jesus. Yeah. Charlie, you want to go? I do. And I actually want to dovetail off of what John just said, because the part that's so fascinating about Charles Blow, I mean, and I I, I like literally have been trying to suck in the entire book over the last like 48 hours. And I want to read more about it is the argumentation that he uses. And it, it, it touches on a lot of these kind of taboos or things that, frankly, I've only heard in very conservative circles that are truths, but are oftentimes sort of unpopular truths, right? And okay. one of them, um, which, John, you actually just touched on this idea of like, well, where would the jobs be in the infrastructure and all that stuff? His point, he actually makes this on PBS, is that if you look at the South, those are places where there actually is a black middle class that's thriving, um, where their black owned businesses, median family income increases are among the best in the country for for, for black Americans. So he makes cases and again, maybe more towards this kind of state focus that he has, Jesus, that you've already talked about. Mm-hmm. That, you know, in some cases sound like talking points, um, you know, from the GOP in the sense of like, what are you talking about? Like, we've got, you know, these sort of conservative administrations, but our black communities are actually relative to the ones in maybe Minneapolis or New York or San Francisco doing significantly better by these different metrics. So he actually mentions those. He also mentions the fact that he that he specifically asked um an organization called Project Implicit, which measures um, all of the the implicit biases in media and et cetera, to actually cut all of this data by geography. And what he found was that there was no difference in racial bias for people in the South at all. He's like, he, he, said, he says they were surprised to hear it. This organization was surprised to hear it. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, he uncovered it, right? And he said that the, the, the police forces that are under consent decrees because of misbehaving are in northern liberal cities, not in southern ones. So he addresses all of these things, and ultimately that's the part that's most fascinating to me is where he nets out is like, hey, listen, what you and I have talked about before, mm-hmm. Jesus, is like where you think that the systemic racism is or exists or how it manifests itself may be different than what you assume because he's making a case here that, no, 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 it's not this panacea that when people migrate from the, you know, starting in the 20s, began, the black communities began to migrate to these mm-hmm. other towns what they actually found, which is where the title comes from, right? The devil you know versus the devil you don't know. What they found was a little bit of the same old, same old, but just manifested in a completely right. different way. In fact, he just has one quote, and I'll just, I'd love your thoughts on both of you on just so far on what I've said, because I am a cringe as well, just so you know. I'm headed in that direction, uh, John, but maybe for different reasons. He actually has a quote that just blew me away. He says, it, it, with respect to how the North, how these cities, these very progressive cities deal with this issue, he said it's an all, he says it's an enormous pageant a faux probity in $80 yoga pants holding $8 lattes among the wealthy who are thus inclined. Yeah. They give a little and expect to be praised a lot. Mm-hmm. And and I just thought that that was really interesting, the way that he views a lot of this stuff, because frankly, I'm reading his words and I'm thinking, wait, is this Candace Owens talking? Like who, you know, even this idea of the fact that the party was co You know going to call you because you said that now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> he probably is. He, uh, well, he was going to call me, but now he's going to call, call you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but anyway, you, do, do, I don't know. Like if what Jesus is like champing at the bit here, but uh, so maybe John is too. Yeah, no, I think you're you're right about all of that. Um, he, I mean, in his, in his argument, which I definitely found very interesting, is he he talks about this whole dynamic of push pull, right? In terms of why people began this migration out of the South, right? And the push was really people running away from Jim Crow laws, right? That yeah. were happening there. To what was seen as a obviously a better opportunity, a, a, a chance for a better life, and and then the sort of realization that many of these things in different forms sort of started to sort of to prop up. 
I think what I still find interesting about everything that he's saying, though, because he's right about, look, many of the places where we talked about police brutality happened in blue states in many, many cases. Also places where you have bigger cities, et cetera, right? But his issue, which I think is really interesting, is that to the degree that those laws get all – they're not really federal laws. They're yeah. state laws. And the place that you're going to be able to impact state laws if you have enough population within a state to be able to change them, right, especially as it relates to incarceration, that alone could have a significant difference in the, in the, in the type of life that people can live in a specific state depending on the type of incarceration laws that you actually have in, in those states, right? I mean you think about now even in places like California, the number of people that are still in, in jail now because of marijuana that is legal in the, in the state, right? So there's a lot that he talked about there, which I think is really interesting. I mean for me, the part that I was struggling with is that maybe I'm too caught up in the theory of this. Because I was a little bit to what you're saying, John, which is like when you see it on paper, you can see it. I'm like, damn, I could, I could totally see how that would work. Mm-hmm. Now, we could talk about like whether it should be done that way, whether you really want an America that is literally have pockets of different people all going to their own corners to all have enough state control. I get it. But it also the, 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 the other the alternative of that is you have, in many cases, pockets of diverse people who may have a very strong point of view, but to have this inability to be able to sort of create real impact within where they live because they're too spread apart. Sure. I mean, I even think of Texas, right? Texas, because I lived in Texas for nine years in Dallas, Dallas tends to always go blue, but it's within a, a very red state, which is now well, it gets a little more purple, starting to, to, to change more and more. In part because of this migration that's happening from places like right. California into Texas. I mean, I think the the time when that's going to start to change is going to be pretty soon uh, where it starts to, you know, you may get a little bit of a, of a Georgia situation. So from that standpoint, when I hear him speak to it, I do think in terms of being a very revolutionary point of view of how you would really increase the amount of political power that African-Americans have here in, the, in this country, I think he's right. For all the reasons that John already stated, I, I, I think ultimately end up in cringe only because I think practically speaking, it'd be very, very hard to pull off. But I think his, his theory as to how to go about doing it, I think is actually pretty, pretty solid. I'll let John get in here. I love the conversation that he sparks yeah. by yeah. making the argument. Now, I think there's a lot of value in that, but it's a little, you know, um, we have movie nights on Friday nights. Uh, in, in my family and we, each of us rotates in the movie that we picked. And, uh, this, this last Friday I picked mission impossible too. Nice. Um, cause we had, we had shown them mission impossible like a month ago. Um, and it's a little bit like the stunts in a mission impossible movie. It's like, you can see how like in a way that could happen, but you also know that's impossible. Like <laughs> on a motorcycle, like you're going to get yeah, the motorcycle the stunt. Yeah. 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 And the, like, yeah, I can I can see how you designed that stunt, but it wouldn't it would we'd be off that motorcycle, you know, in yeah. South Carolina, kind of tumbling down the road. But it it sounds good. By the way, John. So, but look, let's let's hear your thought on this. So, let's say this to your point: it's just not practical, right? We could all see it on paper how it could work, but it's not practical. What to you would be another way to think about? especially as it relates for, for, I think for many people that feel that they're not well represented, especially African-American people in this country, in the context of everything that's gone on this past year and still this social reckoning that, that is happening, is there another potential solution that you see that is more practical yes. that could actually increase people's uh, position in, in, in power in, in, in this country? I think if the, if the leadership exists to um, to mobilize people to physically move permanently, then the leadership should also exist to mobilize people to vote at higher rates than the national average. 
mm. and perhaps to temporarily travel into other states to uh, mobilize the vote, to register people to vote, and to make the most of the population and interest that already exist in those states. So, you know, rather than start with, let's do the absolute hardest thing mm -hmm. and move people who have no uh, organic economic interest in doing so from way up here to way down there. How does that even get paid for? I don't know. Like, yeah. Uh, who's who's going to pay to move somebody from New sure. York to Louisiana? That's a that's a lot of gas money, um, sure. even if you don't fly. But like in, instead of starting there, if that level of motivation exists, well, uh, you know who's going to who's going to get a bus to bus people from here to there to register a bunch of people to vote and uh, and, and increase the rates of of citizen participation in the democracy. I think if you can lay that democratic groundwork first uh, for communities in this country and then build on a base of civic engagement, that probably uh, makes more sense than trying to do both at the same time. Right. Your, hmm. your point is rather than trying to concentrate power, let's actually activate that power behind people that should be part of the, the political process wherever they are. Yeah. like I'm sure there are some more people one could register to vote in Mississippi. And that's a that's lower hanging fruit yeah than you know getting my cousins in queens to move to mississippi sure mississippi is beautiful this time of year you guys I don't know what <laughs> you know what one uh, I, I did want to just qualify my uh my cringe just one additional step because i agree with you guys that it is unworkable and impractical but that's not the, the driver of why i'm saying cringe mm -hmm. so specifically um, so, and the way I'd qualify that is just by sharing something that, that Professor Blow is very, actually to his credit, extraordinarily clear and candid about in his interviews, is that this is not a partisan thing at all, right? He says that black power for him has nothing to do with Democrats or Republicans, and he's not advocating that should this move happen, that all those people would now vote in a consolidated block, which is also interesting, right? Because you'd figure, well, it's just a play to kind of maybe amass his own political perspective. But if you take him at his word, that's not what he's attempting to do. But the reason that I come down on cringe is about the the reason why he said he wrote the book and in effect what what this devil you know you know is about and his quote is black people could colonize and control the states they would have controlled if they had not fled them and to me orientation and intent matters and i don't believe that colonization and control of any on any level by anyone is something that i would consider courageous. I think that that can lead us to a lot of balkanization, which he says, hey, that already exists. In other words, his argument for why this isn't black nationalism is, well, we already have white nationalism. Okay, I get that. And yeah, you can make a case for that. Yeah, but I think your argument there is, I think you're definitely are picking on the words that he's using. I think his point was like, look, if people had been run out from where they were to begin with mm -hmm. because of these Jim Crow law, then they would be already controlling these states. Like that would have happened anyway. It's simply saying, let's bring it back to what it, what it would be. You can make the same case probably in other places like California. Look, there was places where Mexicans were being literally kicked out of where they were sure. born. Sure. Right? And that was a way where people got displaced from their political power that they would have had otherwise. So I, I get your point about colonization, but I think his point is more about this is where people were living, being, and if it mm -hmm. wasn't for this proactive force to try to get them out of there yeah. and to reduce their political power, then they would have eventually gained that kind of political power in those, in those individual areas. John, am I seeing this wrong? Hmm? Uh, no, I, I don't think. 
I, I don't think it's a matter of um, the colonization and control issue. I, I can see the concern there. I also think it's a it's an infrastructure issue, not mm. just jobs, but also education. Like um, this is a probably a multi-decade process if you're talking about tens and hundreds of thousands of people moving, and you know there have to be uh, census. Uh, records that are taken to justify funding to certain locations. You know, you can imagine states putting in place certain laws that restrict, you know, how long it takes that you have to have lived in a place before you can be registered to vote there and things like that. Like there are all kinds of things um, infrastructure-wise that potentially gum up the works. You know, how how do uh, schools get funded in these communities that would have to crop up somehow? Um, and and be built for new people to live in. How are they policed? Um, you know, all kinds of challenges around that that would take uh, either institutional support or um, yeah, a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of strategizing to figure out. So um, you know, I was also very careful not to state anything explicitly political uh, about this, though mm-hmm. I do think. In the South, um, this would be viewed as an explicitly political power play, sure. whatever you might want to say yeah. about it. I mean, mm-hmm. um, uh, but, uh, you know, for all those reasons, cringe. All right. I Love think we, we cringed that one enough. Three for three. Three for three. Maybe the last one. We'll see. <laughs> the last time that'll ever happen. Um, changing gears dramatically. Elon Musk. Our friend Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Always he turns down a million dollars. Uh, million off- one. 1.1, 1. 1, by the way. Was I looked 1. it up. 1.1. 1. Uh, 1. <laughs> I missed the point one yeah. offer for his NFT tweet. So as reported by CNBC, Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk first put out, then withdrew the offer to sell one of his tweets as a non-fungible token or NFT. What is that? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll or get John, that. somebody we'll educate that, John, because you got to think. Yeah. John's, John's, got, to John's, got, the, John's uh, got the 411 on that one. Uh, so even though he had been offered, as you mentioned, I guess 1.1 million for that digital for a digital asset, right? So in a tweet, Elon had said that I'm selling this song about NFT, NFTs as an NFT, which is pretty hilarious. I don't know if you guys got a chance to listen to the song, but it's pretty funny because it's literally it's like a selling that is a song about NFTs, which he's then selling as an NFT. Um, and the tweet included a song with the lyrics, NFT for your vanity, computers never sleep, it's verified, it's guaranteed, right? So it's like this kind of like techno kind of mm. song. I don't, I don't know what you know type it is. Uh, now, the tweet for sale also contained a short video loop, which portrayed a trophy label, Vanity Trophy, with the term NFT at the top, and uh, HODL across the bottom. By the way, I'm not sure if it's pronounced that way, but I guess it's, um, it's a cheer used by cryptocurrency fans and retail investors. Hodl, yeah. Hodl. Hodl, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to encourage peers to hold on to coin uh, or shares in a company rather than sell, right? So by the, but by the following day, Elon you know, had changed his mind, tweeting, actually, it doesn't feel quite right. Uh, selling this will pass. Now, about NFTs, and I'll, I'll do my best, John, but please, you know, Correct your pretty Set us straight. Set us straight. Uh, they are unique crypto tokens used to represent digital assets, including images and video clips. They can be bought and sold like physical collectibles. And NFTs run on decentralized digital ledger or blockchain, which means that transactions, ownership, and validity of any asset that an NFT represents can be tracked. Now, the last thing on this story, which I think is actually pretty interesting, is the timing of when he made all this announcement about selling this tweet and then taking it back. Um it's, it's being questioned by by a few because of, you know, it's also being seen as a, as a way to distract from the not-so-positive news about Tesla that were coming out at the exact same time, right? So on the same day that he put out this tweet, 
Uh, financial filings revealed that former Tesla automotive president Jerome Gillen uh, will be vacating their role to become Tesla's president of heavy trucking. And no replacement, at least when I looked at this, had been announced yet. And the second on that same day was that the Federal, the Federal Vehicle Safety Authority, NHTSA, said it will be sending a team to Detroit to investigate the underlying causes of a violent crash that occurred there on March 11 involving a Tesla sedan and a semi-truck. So there was some these news going on at the same time while um, uh, Elon Musk was selling and then not selling we'll this NFT uh, uh, asset. So courage or cringe on basically Elon Musk, uh, you know, basically putting this for sale and taking it down. Uh, John, as our guest and uh, resident expert on all these items, we'd love for you to go first again. Well, on on him taking it down, I guess I will say courage. Um, <laughs> I, putting it up in the first place. Yeah, cringe. and that's what that's what it is. But, yeah, it's about putting it up in the first place. It's about putting yeah. it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I got I got to cringe then, um, because first of all, NFTs. What are they? They're basically digital paperwork, right? That that shows the authenticity of um, the authenticity, at least of a transaction. They don't prove the authenticity of an item. So mm-hmm. somebody could uh, take a, a digital file, um, make a copy of somebody else's digital artwork, and and sell it with an NFT backing it. And yeah, it's backed by an NFT, but that doesn't mean you got the digital art that you so that you paid for. So it's not a rights right? management platform at all. It's simply for transfer basically tracking transactions, right? Right, right. You can still get scammed with NFTs. Sure. Um, unless you're buying it from the original artist, or you can look at the ledger and go back and see that it originated with the original artist. So the buyer still has to beware, but it's a it's a digital process backing it up. And I think, you know, look, I mean, NFTs are hot right now. Tesla's hot right now. Anything Elon Musk says about anything, including Dogecoin, which is like this, mm-hmm. I call it the Chuck E. Cheese money of crypto. It's like, <laughs> it's not really backed by anything. It's not as if, it, wow. but like the value's going up. And so there are lots of Dogecoin bulls and people who are all about doge because uh, you know elon musk and mark cuban and you know a few other people have said nice things about it those guys do not have most of their money in dogecoin they don't care whether dogecoin goes to zero or to a dollar like they'll Mm -hmm. say this stuff because they have an idea and it might be a good idea it might be a bad idea but mm. they're not responsible if you make a million bucks or or lose a million bucks so people stop chasing these guys around and figure out your own ideas for for how value ought to be represented and stored just because somebody has made a billion dollars you know at one thing doesn't mean they're a genius at everything <laughs> else right yeah like, that yeah, makes sense. That's my... By the way, John, it, it, I'm curious. What about what about sort of just thinking the distinction between NFTs and like Bitcoin? Like, I guess the part that I haven't really fully understood or tracked is why these different types of currencies to begin with, right? Um, because even Bitcoin, my understanding, and one thing is pretty limited, is that it also uses the decentralized digital ledger. I think like all blockchain does. Blockchain, so then the question yeah. becomes is like, why then all these different variations to different types of currencies? Well, I mean, it's. I think it's similar to that. If it's worth doing once, it's worth doing a million times. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bitcoin is sort of the original, and um, it has the strongest brand in crypto. 
and there's a built-in mechanism for scarcity with Bitcoin. It has become um, sort of an inflation hedge, you know, uh, against the idea that you've got all of this money that's getting printed right now to recover from the pandemic, and there's all this debt. Like people see um, this digital asset as a way of hedging against the effects of that. And then, you know, in some countries where um, they don't have the benefit of the dollar um, mm -hmm. being sort of the, the standard currency uh, for the world of running on that, Bitcoin could serve as um, a store, a critical store of value and way um, to achieve stability. So, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of real there around Bitcoin itself, though I, I would not, I don't invest in it. I've got, <laughs> the, the only Bitcoin I've been involved in is about four, I think it was four or five years ago, the CEO of Coinbase, I was meeting with him to sort of understand the company, and he gave me $1 worth of Bitcoin in the wallet to kind of show me how it worked. And I kept that $1 worth of Bitcoin, and I'm pulling up the app right now. <laughs> right now, it is worth $196.21. Wow, so, from four years ago. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so... <laughs> So yeah, so I, I should have put ten thousand dollars. There in you that go. Day or <laughs> yeah, it's not like you messed up. Um, Story of my life, John. But <laughs> but no, I, I just started to say I'm going to keep that one dollar and go. just see what happens. W watch it grow or or shrink, mm. and it, it grew. All right, so that's right. one cringe from Mr. Musk. You want me to go uh, second? Uh, I'll go second. Go ahead. So yeah, um, this one for me is pretty quick. It, it's cringe, and I, and I think it's cringe. Some a little bit for the so the offer of this this NFT, but. To me, the timing definitely feels very much as a here, look over here, kind of like shaking it, you know, like distracting people from what's really going on, what's happening with the, with the with the organization, right? Um, almost like not so positive news. So the whole thing feels like he's like either a like I don't I don't quite understand what he's saying here. He's either making fun of it by basically creating this this video with the song that's literally making fun of of NFTs to begin with. But then it shows like the fact that he's getting he's willing to get or people can still want to pay him a million bucks, a one point one million, pretty quickly. The whole thing seems very absurd. And then at the same time, being sort of distracting from the bigger issues that are actually, you know, should be be talked about rather than us talking about this, uh, this little, you know, meme video that he, that he put together. So that's why I find the whole thing being being cringe. John, the one thing I wanted to find out was who was the guy or gal who offered one point one million. That's what I want to know. Like put that. I don't know. I, I just want to know who that person is. Yeah, I didn't see I it anywhere. Or or organization, right? Yeah. Because believe me, that would be much more interesting as a segment on this show that to to analyze the motivations there. Look, I think uh, I agree with you guys both. I'm on cringe on this. Uh, at worst case scenario, there's this kind of nefarious, evil, you know, Machiavellian distraction stratagem that you're talking about, Jesus, which I don't yeah. believe. But even if it is, that's cringy. At least it just smacks of kind of bored rich people stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know what I mean? Yeah. We're just like, I'm just yeah. going to make this thing up. It also comes on the heels of other weird uh, Elon Musk stuff from the last week or so. Um, and I don't know if you guys uh, maybe on CNBC covered this, John, but I, I read a piece that they had actually filed a, a change of title in the SEC filings <laughs> for, for their titles, like officially changed their titles. Elon, Elon Musk changed his title uh, to Techno King. And their CFO, Zach Kirkhorn, to Master of Coin. 
like an oh, actual see, SEC filing. I, I love that. First now of he all, kept like, his. He, they both kept their CEO and CFO titles. These are just additional titles. Oh, additional. Oh, ones. Got it. These additional are on, titles. That, these are those honorifics. Are, those are so, strong moves. I like that. Honorifics. Yeah. So yeah. they can just get a separate group of business cards printed out that say, <laughs> you know, just depending on the meeting they're going to, I love they can that. decide which. Which yeah. cards they want to use, I guess. This whole NFT thing for me was like one of those moments I know I'm going to recall. Like one of the moments I really began feeling old. Like it was right. it was in this <laughs> NFT thing. You know, like trying to understand. Because I had heard the term a few times before, but I didn't really look it up right. until uh, Moss started talking about NFT. Um, and to me, it's just it's one of those kind of moments in time that it marks for me. So ultimately, yeah. I'm... I'm I'm cringe. Uh, I, you know, I got people, uh, you know, five seconds from, from this office and this studio, John, we've got a park that is full of people who are displaced and have no home and are living in tents. And it's like, we're talking about, you know, million dollar digital assets. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a weird thing to, right. to, to wrap my head around. Um, and for that and many other reasons, I'm cringe. So congratulations. We're now, we're continue batting a thousand. We're, we're two for two here. <laughs> All right. So let's see if we can, let's see if we can, if we can uh, finish strong. Probably won't. Well, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to diverge on this last one. I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. We got, we got to talk it through. Yeah. So, uh, this last one is, uh, gay Captain America, right? Um, so Marvel comics is getting ready to introduce his first LGBTQ plus Captain America in a new comic series set to launch on June 2nd to kick off pride month. Uh, the series is called The United States of Captain America, written by Christopher Cantwell and illustrated by Dale uh, Eagleshaw. It's set to celebrate the character's incredible legacy by bringing together various Captain Americas from throughout the years for a grand adventure to find Captain America's missing shield. Now, in the story, uh, the original Captain America, which is Steve Rogers, which is the one that many of us are familiar with from the, from the films, uh, goes on on a road trip to find out why this new villain wants to wants uh, actually took his, his shield and then second wants to kill all the all the other Captain Americans right now Aaron Fisher is said to be one of the new captains is an openly gay man who was known as Captain America of the railways who protects protects runaways and the unhoused um, now there's been like I looked it up actually because I was curious like how many Captain Americans are there well there's been at least that I could find 15 different Captain Americas in the history of the really? character. Including men, women uh, that were both white and black, and even Latina, Roberta Mendez. So, oh yeah, that's right. I remember that. I remember yeah. that. Now, writer specifically Puerto Rican, I think, wasn't she? Like that uh, character. That I don't know. I yeah. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure, yeah. but there's a, quite a variety of of different Captain Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, writer Joshua Trujillo and artist Jan Basaldua, who is a trans, will introduce Fisher in his first issue of the series. Now, Trujillo said in a press release, Aaron is inspired by heroes of the queer community, activists, leaders, and everyday folks pushing for a better life. He stands for the oppressed and the forgotten. I hope his debut story resonates with readers and helps inspire the next generation of heroes. Bazaldua added, I really enjoy designing him as a transgender person. I am happy to be able to present an openly gay person who admires Captain America and fights against evil to help those who are almost invisible to society. Mm-hmm. While, while I was drawing him, I thought, well, Cap fights against super powerful beings and saves the world almost always. But Aaron helps those who walk alone on the streets with the problems that they face every day. I hope people like that. Uh, I, hope, I hope people like the, the end result. Now, last thing I will say on this topic is this is actually not a new phenomenon, right? Meaning the reimagining of superhero characters, even some of these like more traditional ones or historical ones, uh, as being LGBTQ+. Now, there are a number of these characters and others, once again, have been reimagined in alternate universes. These include Batwoman, Green Lantern, Harley Quinn, Mystique, that's from X-Men, mm-hmm. and of course, the character with the best last name of all, America Chavez. Oh. No, America Chavez, a Latina queer superhero. <laughs> 
So, uh, courage or cringe here on uh, Marvel um, introducing this uh, this new version of Captain America, um, John. Why don't we finish strong? You've been going, you've been going, you know, first every time. The, you've been setting the tone. I've just, <laughs> yeah. been, I've just been agreeing with everything that John says. I've like, offered no critical thought whatsoever. He always agrees with me. Like, he, I think yeah. it's like, you know, like with you, he's like, no, 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 I can't, I can't pick fights here. All right, John, so go ahead. No, this is, this is courage. I mean, I, I look back, I remember when I was a kid, we, we weren't hip to the comic book game that, you know, the, these aren't linear stories where it's like superman is dead what superman is dead he's really dead and superman wasn't dead right but you know and then you know robin how many robins have there been and Mm -hmm. you know robin gets killed and whatnot Mm -hmm. but part of what they were doing uh, all along was creating modern mythology and these cultural touchstones and then using them as language and symbology to uh to make moral points Mm -hmm. And to tell more powerful stories. And I think we've seen that play out with Miles Morales and Spider-Man. Sure. You know, we've seen that play just so many, so many ways. So, like, maybe years ago, I would have cringed in the sense that, oh, okay, well, now they're trying to do this to Captain America. No, they're not trying to do anything to Captain America. As you said, there have been more than a dozen Captain Americas. They're using Captain America as a symbol for American greatness, exceptionalism, ideals, and challenging us to think about how different groups of Americans fit within our concept of America. And I think that's courageous. Um, that's what's supposed to happen within a body politic. We're supposed to, you know, just, it, it, I'll, I'll bring it right back to what Charles Blow is doing with, you know, his, his argument about migration. Um, it's not just about practically should the migration happen. It's the conversation that gets created by presenting the idea. And I think, uh, you know, by presenting this idea of an embodiment of an America, of America that cares for people on the streets, uh, that fits into the LGBTQ community, that is so different from the original design and concept of Steve Rogers. I think Marvel is once again taking us in a very intriguing direction into having conversations that we ought to have. There you go. Nicely done. Um, yeah, I'll go, I'll go next. Yeah, very very well put. Um, I'm also encouraged on this one. And I think for a lot of the issues that you just brought up, John, uh, the, thought, the thing that I also found really interesting is specifically what this specific Captain America is for, right, is protecting the runaways and, and unhoused. And when I think about Obviously, you know, as a matter of fact, homelessness is one of the issues that even Charlie and I, we know, we talk a lot about and we're involved in some projects right now. He has a nonprofit as a of homelessness and we're involved in some projects specifically around bringing to light solutions for how to address homelessness. But I think as a group, LGBTQ plus people, um, you know, are definitely you know, pretty highly impacted as it relates to, to those that end up, you know, being homeless because of just not being accepted, et cetera, for a, a bunch of other reasons. So the fact that this is sort of the focus of this specific Captain America, I thought was a really interesting way to, to present them uh, in this first sort of outing, right? And, you know, the other thing that I think about, I think similar to what you were sharing, is that comic books many times have been a sort of fo- form of social commentary. You know, I think of X-Men, right? And X-Men very much was sort of dealing with race relations uh, in its own form, right? And many times ahead of its times, I would say, in terms of how they address some of these issues. 
So I, it's really interesting because in many ways, you know, when we think about comic books, we think about comic books that are really are meant to be primarily consumed by children. But yet, in many of these cases, is the comic book themselves who seem to be sometimes even ahead of the curve of bringing some of these issues to light in their own way, right? Um, and I would even say, I mean, the, the one thing I was, you know, as we thought about this, where the reason why it would be potentially controversial is to the degree that as a parent, whether or not you're ready to have this kind of conversation with your child and whether you want like the you comic know, to, book to do it or yeah, yeah. well you want the comic book to be the one that sort of presents this right and how to agree that you, you can you can sort of analyze it but i also think that for comic books specifically in this part I, this is my opinion i actually don't know this this case but i do wonder for these type of style of comic books how much is at this stage young children even really the core demographic that they're yeah, really going after that's what I was right thinking. i mean probably i think it's because probably not the case so even where I would have had potential hesitation in terms of not being able to control the messaging or being the first to present it to your, to your child if you're not ready to do so or not, I think that the the age demographic has shifted quite a bit, especially for, for comic books, where it's probably less of a concern in my mind. Uh, so all in all, I think for a lot of reasons we just covered, I put them on their on the courageous. They're not uh, they're not they're not reading comic books. They're too busy like trading uh, Gronkowski NFTs and playing uh, <laughs> and watching uh, TikTok and all the things yeah, that, uh, yeah. that are going on. Yeah. So I I hate to do this, gentlemen. Ah, uh, Charlie, we were so, so close. close. We're so close, man. We're gonna go so courage. close. Uh. We're All so right. close, but I came down on the other side after some serious discernment and, and thinking about this. I came okay. down on cringe for a couple reasons. Number one, I love everything that John just said, the tapestry of the American Republic, the diversity that's recognized, the kind of like, um, you know, this sort of reflection in a popular culture sense of the conversation that the country needs to be having. I love what the character does. It's super admirable, especially as it deals with runaways. I have a lot of experience with that and, and runaways Almost one-to-one oftentimes links to human trafficking, oftentimes links to a lot of other unsavory things. It leads to a lot of other challenges. So I love all that. The part that I don't like about it and ultimately what got me into that range of mm-hmm. maybe in the low 50s cringe um, was the fact that, the, that it's so self-referential what this character is. Like, I'm the gay Captain America. And then everything becomes around that. So one of the one of the starting point for my cringe was the fact that it's so so self-referential. And then the commentary from a lot of the people in the gay community that I actually read, which was a lot of them, and I look, I get it. Even saying gay community, I don't know what that means. There's probably people from every sure. slice of life, and I get that. We're part of the Latino community. I still don't know what that means. But 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 um, you know, a lot of them were very critical about it, like saying, like, yeah, you, you know, you'll have two issues of this, it'll be gone, and somebody will get a promotion. And it was very kind of like we've seen it again. And I wonder if that would have happened. If they just simply introduced this character who was clear to the reader or the audience was gay or identified as gay and didn't say it, like didn't have the headline that read that. So that was my one question. And then the, the second but thing you that comes – timing though that, that really creates that kind of – because I think what I you're speaking to – I don't know. I, I'm just – I'm curious about whether or not their commentary, whether their disdain for it being that they're in that community would be as strong if it was just like here it is without – Pointing at it, well, I and think they the discovered would, it. Yeah, I think the thing I would I would ask is whether they have the same reaction. If this was something that Marvel was just doing, that wasn't necessarily had to be tied to Pride Month, because exactly. you and I deal with that stuff all the time. Sure. Like all of a sudden, brands like really care about Latinos on Cinco de Mayo. That's right. Or <laughs> really care about Latinos, and or or you same thing in African American community, right? Like all of a sudden, Black, Black History, History Month. Month. Oh, great! Let's talk about Black people. Like we could talk about it other times. Like that's it's okay, point. guys. That's my point. So philosophically, but I think that's that one of my issues. Adds a lot to I'm sure some of that. It does. You know, that's philosophically one of my issues. And the other one, which is perhaps slightly more. Co- 
more controversial, but again, as is my want, um, I went and looked up statistics. I couldn't find comic book statistics, but I did find a good proxy, I think, of like general media statistics from, uh, from GLAD, from the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. And what they looked at in their last full year, there's something on the order of 19% of all, in this case, I'm using the, uh, film releases mm-hmm. as a proxy for this, but 19% of films included characters that were lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and or queer. Or queer. He, a big increase from the previous year and the highest percentage of inclusive films found in the eight-year history of the report. Now, 18, it was roughly 19%. I looked at the, the stats on percentage of folks who identify as in these different categories uh, Gallup just released a stat. It's 5.6%, and apparently it's one of the higher uh, uh, you know, numbers of, or estimates that are out there. You can find them from Census or UCLA that peg the number between 25 to 3.5%. That's a total population. Total probably, population. Right? Yeah. yeah, and so when I look at that, 25 to, say, 5.5%, if you look at that range, and compare it to a 19%, again, not an exact comparison, but a proxy – then I, th- I see an overrepresentation in this particular case. And so the combination of all of those factors led me to land on, you know, again, low 50s, but cringe on this one. And sorry to destroy our, our just amazing coordination here, but uh, we're going to yeah. end on. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you destroyed it. I mean, <laughs> with an asterisk, you destroyed it with an asterisk. You know what, you know what else is overrepresented in comic books is like really, really high metabolism. I mean, if you think about <laughs> not a lot of dad bods, that's right? true. Not that's a lot true. of obesity. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I see a lot of six packs, and I'm I'm kind of concerned there too, right. body image wise. <laughs> they need to they need to they switch it up. Game, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the the comic book world, you know, Marvel, DC, etc., um, have been pushing on, uh, you know, um, representation when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community for a long time. So is this going to be like two issues and go away? Yes. That's the point. Like they have other characters who they just sort of introduced and have these longer storylines and it doesn't get exactly the kind of attention because they were introduced that way. They didn't take a symbol like this iconic idea and mess with it, you know, for a limited time only maybe, but mess with it to make a point. So, you know, I, I hear that. I hear that. And I'm glad we got a little like, disagreement you know conflict we we john we always do this that's part of the part of our problem is we rarely <laughs> agree on anything uh, but but i would think so charlie from your two I points think, i think you're john's a peacemaker i think that's yeah exactly <laughs> so from your two points charlie i think yeah. your, your first one mm-hmm. i definitely think there's a lot of there's very valid point of what you're saying right mm-hmm. and, I, and i could totally see how some people within the you know the the LGBTQ community will look at this and be a little bit jaded, like, yeah, sure. Like, we're going to be, once again, really important to you all of a sudden uh, for this month or a couple of weeks, and then this is going to go away, right? Yeah. And it does kind of feel that way a little bit because of the timing and to your point, mm-hmm. of sort of a, just a couple of, I'm sure, stories about him. The second one, I guess the, the only thing I would, I would look at, I think you make a valid point, although I would love to see, I just don't have it in front of me, what those stats, how that differs the younger, by generation, right? By age group. How does that actually look in terms of representation? Because I have to imagine- Are you talking about the global surveys on who is who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to imagine it's just just a lot higher as you go younger, right? And I I think part of of my question as it relates to these kind of comic books is like, who really is the intended audience? 
Right. right. Like if your intended audience is 1834, as an example, mm-hmm. then to some extent it should be more representative of whatever that 1834 audience that you're going after. Right. Probably not as concerned with what the 50 plus audience thinks or not relative to representation, yeah. et cetera. I don't right? know. I don't know the stats either. And you're probably right. But let's just say that a three X to a five X over representation is still probably even if you look at it and de-average it by segment is still going to be a pretty significant over representation. So, again, it wasn't one thing for me. It was yeah. a variety of things. And again, I, I, I think the character characters noble and all that stuff but that's where i where i where i netted out on it um that and of course just to kind of like break yeah. our streak because my, my most not uh, agree on everything otherwise the show goes away you know my, what i mean my most surprising <laughs> thing on, on this one was uh kind of see the it's actually a lot a number of characters that are in that that are either represented as lgbtq characters mm-hmm. or that in alternate timelines and universes they are and like green even green lantern right like i've never heard of some of these some of these i i didn't realize it until i saw them like oh not thinking about it back about that character i'm like yeah i could see how it was represented that way sure um but it was a pretty interesting obviously exercise to to see that yeah no very very well put um john awesome to play Thank you for your uh, for your input and for your feedback. Um, made a difference again. I think you actually did bring a lot of calm and peace to the conversation. Normally, is uh, <laughs> significantly more uh, more pointed. But uh, just wanted to thank you for uh, for participating. Um, and I'd love for you to just share with the folks like how they can follow you, how they can keep up with you with the work you're doing at Fort Media, like all the good stuff that's going on with the Black Experience Project. Like, w- give us like that four one one as well. Yeah. Um, once again, it's fortmedia.com, F-O-R-T-T media.com. If you're on LinkedIn, that's the best way. Uh, follow me on LinkedIn. I post um, everything there. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, so if you don't have LinkedIn, Twitter's good too. And um, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend those two. There'll be more interactive lessons from the course coming out. It, it's available. The outline of the course is available as a free download. Uh, as well at fortmedia.com. So you just go there, click on it, um, type in your email address, you'll get added to the mailing list. You can download uh, the PDF that shows the outline of each lesson. Um, primarily, this is about getting that content out there, uh, provoking conversation. Um, if you'd like a, more, a deeper, more engaging walk through it, then the interactive lessons are for you. And they start at just five bucks, or you can get a bundle of three for 12, uh, $12 as well. So it's, it's really about accessibility. Awesome. Well, we couldn't right. we couldn't uh, recommend it more highly than we do. Um, but thanks again, John, for joining us. All right, y'all. Remember to subscribe if you're listening. Please hit that button, subscribe. Check us out on Patreon.com/backslash The Diversity Remix. Help support the work that we're doing here. Thanks again to John Fort FortMedia.com. We've got a couple of really exciting shows coming up, Jesus. We've got uh, I don't think we know the exact date, but we've got Richard Cabral, Emmy-nominated uh, actor. He's going to be on the show talking about all the stuff that he's up to. And we've got a we've got so much stuff that we could be encouraging or cringing that there's just like we're what do they call it what's we, that we expression don't, we don't lack topics that's for sure yeah no, there's, not, there's no lack of topics to talk about but um, anyway thank you for listening thank you John again and we'll see you next time on TDR If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. 
We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.